Welcome to Season 2 of the Big Data Beard Podcast. This season's episodes will explore popular trends like machine learning and AI and the use cases that are making big data a big deal. We're excited to be a community sponsor of Strata Data and AI conferences around the world. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for your chance to win a free pass to Strata Data in San Jose. And now, you're listening to the Big Data Beard. All right, welcome to 2018, folks. I'm Corey Minton, your host for this Big Data Beard podcast. I've got Kyle and Thomas along uh, with their beards along for this fun ride. And as everybody is probably aware, machine learning is easily one of the hottest topic, topics in analytics and big data for not only the back half of 2017, definitely the hottest thing happening in 2018, and I'm sure it's going to stick around for a while. And a handful of us who are uh, students of this big data space and the, the environment, we're, uh, we're fans of machine learning, think it's a cool trend and think it's going to have a lot of power. And we've started poking around and looking at companies doing interesting work to accelerate machine learning in the enterprise. And we wandered into these, uh, these folks from Data Robot. And we thought, these folks are doing some pretty interesting work simplifying how organizations and frankly, aspiring data scientists can leverage machine learning in real life. And so today we're actually joined by a real life unicorn, a data scientist with, uh, at least in his pictures, a very robust big data mustache. His name is Dr. Greg Michelson. He's the VP at Data Robot, leading their work for banking customers and the Data Robot Labs teams. Greg, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, although I'm I'm sad to report that my mustache did not survive the Christmas holidays of uh, <laughs> of the New Year's resolution. <laughs> I have to assume I have to assume by casually you mean that it got taken off as you were trying to eat a turkey leg and it got pulled <laughs> off. That's the only acceptable answer. <laughs> no, sorry, shaved off. It turns out every mustache has a lifespan, and oh. you know you wake up one day and. That's all she wrote for the mustache. So, see now here's a play. We're gonna we're gonna teach you this play from our playbook. If you if you brand something like Big Data Beard as your thing, then it's really hard for the wife or anyone to tell you you got to shave it off because, I mean, there's like stickers with our likeness on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife once told me that she wasn't gonna kiss me until I shaved my mustache. Oh yeah, well that's you know you gotta you gotta respect the ladies. So Greg, I, I obviously we're uh, we're fans of Data Robot. We started doing some some trolling on you, and and one thing I pulled out of your bio that I thought was interesting is uh, you are a uh, or at least you have some ties to the state of Alabama. You got your PhD at the University of Alabama. So you are you uh, the PhDs from Alabama love college football and are you excited about college football championships. Yeah, man. Uh, I went to LSU too. So I did my undergrad at LSU. And so, you know, occasionally my undergrad will play my grad and <laughs> we'll see uh, which part of me is the best football team in the, in the country. Nice. Well, I love it. We're, I think there's, you know, if, if not by, well, I mean, I'm trying to help from a body weight perspective, but from a mass perspective where I'm seeing a lot of data science and big data people in the Southeast, this makes me really proud to be down here in the heart of Dixie practicing this stuff. Amen, brother. <laughs> so greg you live in uh, charlotte north carolina now is that right i do all right well let's let's talk a little bit about uh data robots so one of the things that we so you know disclaimer kyle and i and one of our other big data beard guys uh, went to the data robot essentials course a couple weeks back because we were just totally interested in how this thing works 
And I think the, the kind of the, the, the general statement that you guys use to describe the platform is the democratization of data science. Tell me, tell me what that means. Like, what, what does that really mean? What is Data Robot doing to make it make data science approachable? Yeah, I think, you know, I actually read this morning uh, an article from Glassdoor or LinkedIn or something. I can't recall where it was from, but it uh, it mentioned that data science, obviously, its salaries have topped. Like, they've stopped going up, even though they're still really high. Um, and, you know, that made me think that there's some some risk. So even though there is a ton of demand out there in the market for data scientists and for data science, because uh, companies are collecting a ton of data and they want to obviously monetize that data and help it uh, help use it to help them make their businesses run cheaper and and be more efficient and so on. There's a couple of problems. One is you can't hardly find these people, right? They all work at uh, Google or Facebook or whatever. They're impossible to hire and they change jobs every nine months for 30% more money. So they're super hard to get. But the other is they're, they're I mean, most of them are space cadets, right? And, and I speak from personal experience, right? These guys are, you know, they like to solve problems. They like to write computer code. They're not bankers, right? They're not uh, hospital administrators. They're not speaking business people uh and so i think i well i think i constantly worry that executives out there are are gonna get sick of this one day they're gonna say you know what we invested in data scientists phds and we're just not getting any value right and so we're done right i think aig did something like this a, a few years ago they they kind of doubled down on setting up a science department and then you know a few years later they they just laid them all off, right? Because they weren't getting any ROI. Uh, so that's that's kind of the the place where Data Robot plays a bit. You know, we what we've done is we've automated the technical pieces of the data science role. So uh, training the models, uh, pre-processing the data, uh, you know, handling missing values, uh, tuning the different models, uh, picking out which algorithms to use, partitioning your data, all that kind of technical stuff that your PhDs normally have to do, we automate it so that you can take business people who actually know the business problems and use them to solve the problems that they're really the experts in. So that's what we try to do. Okay. So Long one of the things, do. no, it's, that's perfect. I, I think one of the things I think is interesting is let's, I want to unpack this a little bit because one of the things that is, um, is interesting to me is that uh, we have a lot of data. That's, that's one thing. But the, just the process of once we have the data and we've cleansed it and we've done that, the process of applying machine learning to a data set is pretty tough, right? I mean, it, it, there's a bunch of different libraries uh, that you would use. I mean, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of challenges in trying to figure out which models are right. Like, why do you, like, who, who, how do you guys do that better? Like, what, how do you, I mean, you clearly have some experience building models, but really in that model building selection thing, why is data robot unique there? Cause I think your history and where you guys came from may have something to do with that. Yeah. Well, so it turns out that the secret to building really good models is not being an expert in one type, right? So, you know, maybe if you're playing in like the computer vision space or something like that, I mean, in that space kind of neural networks are the only show in town. But if you're building like a fraud model or, a, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to 
predict readmission in a hospital or you're doing like drug discovery or whatever it is, there's no rule of thumb to say, oh, you should use XG boost here or, you know, you should build a linear model or whatever it is. The only way to know what's going to work the best is to try everything. Uh, and so our roots are kind of in this thing. You guys are familiar with it, I'm sure, called Kaggle. Oh, yeah. Uh, Com competitive data science, right? Yeah, it's like Airbnb for data science, right? <laughs> So, <laughs> I've never heard it said that way. I was I was thinking it was more like the, uh, 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 it was like massive, was it massive online game or, you know, one of those a for, MOOC for data science. Yeah, a MOOC for data science nerds. <laughs> yeah, totally. So it turns out the secret to winning uh, those things uh, is just to try as many things as you can. And you'll discover the thing that works for your particular data set for whatever reason. And and that's how you get good models. So what DataRobot does is it essentially just tries everything uh, using kind of brute force and also some, some heuristics and some smart things that we've baked into the platform. It's basically AI building AI, which is pretty cool. Oh, it's like a von Neumann probe. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> that's the, the self-replicating spacecraft that take over the galaxies. It's like AI building AI, or maybe it's what you call it, Skynet. There you go. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> so, so one of the things that, that I found interesting. So, it's so what what Data Robot does is is a very focused thing because one of the things that I learned in in that class and that we learned was there's some things that have to happen before uh, Data Robot is leveraged, which is really around this this concept of data wrangling. Mm. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think there's a couple of pieces to it. Uh, one is data that you get wherever you are is going to be a mess, right? Uh, you're going to have missing values. You're going to have, you know, just weirdness about your data that you can't discover until you start kind of down this process. And so being able to iterate really fast is important. And then the other piece that's important is being able to uh, partition your data appropriately, right? So I don't know how technical you want to get, but one of the, the one of the secrets to, uh, to building these models in a, a safe way is to never evaluate how well a model works on data that was used to train it. So you have to partition out, set aside some data uh, at the start in order to have kind of a holdout or a test sample that uh, that you can use to, to see how well your models did. So yeah, that's another piece of the whole data wrangling pie that, that DataRobot takes care of for you. So, Greg, is this tool, do, do we use data robot? Do you focus on the data scientists? Is this a tool for them? Or is this something that our data engineers can use? Because like you were saying, data scientists are, you know, really hard to find and really popular. So is this something that a data engineer can start looking at and running up against? Or do you see this being something that the data scientist is going to use and kind of augment for them? You know, it's funny you should ask that question. Um, I would say probably 60% of our users I'm, I'm guessing, have never done data science projects before. Really? Yeah. So, you know, we went in with one of the biggest banks uh, in the world and started working with an organization, actually a sales organization that was trying to uh, kind of increase efficiency and, and boost revenue and so on. And we worked with, you know, some guys that, some guys and gals that had never done data science before. 90% of our users at that bank have never done this kind of work before. And within the first year, they generated, you know, $10, $20 million in additional revenue just from prospecting better, right? So 
you know, that's that's a subset of our users, kind of these new analysts that are data savvy. Maybe they spend most of their time in Excel, um, you know, kind of kind of doing that analyst type work. Uh, the rest of our users are are you know your your data scientists right with with varying levels of of skill. Uh, I find that that uh, working with data scientists is a bit of a mixed bag uh, because there's some it's sort of a mix of skepticism and fear I think uh, with with a tool like Data Robot because we automate a, a big chunk of the work that a lot of data scientists do today. Uh, and so, you know, there's a portion of data scientists who see Data Robot and they go, "Holy crap! What am I going to do?" Right? <laughs> you know, like, is my job going to be is going to be here? And then there's a, a a bigger chunk of data scientists that look at Data Robot and say, "Wow, I can accomplish you know ten times more than I could yesterday using a tool like this." Yeah, but that's that's one of those things, like you said, the people there, there's not nearly enough of the data scientists anyway. So maybe the maybe maybe they can spend their time actually focused on developing the ROI rather than developing the models for the sake of model development. Yeah, I mean it's a trend, right? So in the data data visualization space, over the last five years, we've had tools like ClickView, Tableau come about uh, that have democratized the whole management reporting piece on the uh, data prep ETL side, we've got tools like uh, Alteryx or Paxata or Talend or some of these others that have made it possible for uh, for folks that can't code to build data sets yeah. and so on. Data Robot has done the same for data science. It's certainly the case that over the next five years, uh, you know, technical people are going to be forced to become more businessly and business people are going to be forced to become more technical. Yeah, one of the things we've we've heard this over and over again is like uh, you know machine learning's cool and and to apply it is neat and we'll we'll get to some of the ways you do it. But uh, one of my my kind of arguments, you know, where I think we'll see things like machine learning and AI have the most impact is where intelligent software companies use it to power either building other ML or that they use it to simplify other very technical jobs already in place. Right, automation on steroids to quote, uh, Andrew Ning, right. It, he's like, you know, that's, that's kind of where I think a lot of this is going out. I, I feel like, I, f I feel like machine learning, what you guys are doing with it to, to, to democratize it is almost as cool or, I mean, it's definitely as cool, but it feels like it's the nearest term chance machine learning has to find its way into the enterprise. Yeah. There's a lot of places, right. Um, you know, I mean, it's certainly not new that, that these kinds of predictive models replace, uh, some of the more manual work. I mean, 25 years ago, when you went and got a quote for your auto insurance, you'd sit down with an agent or an underwriter and they'd, you know, fill out some forms and estimate your risk and so on. But today, there's, there's, it doesn't happen, right? It's all a predictive model. Um, and so, you know, that this is kind of the natural extension of that. You know, if you look at a, a factory, right, a, you know, a manufacturing plant or something like that, why in the world wouldn't you hook up automated machine learning to all those sensors that are taking readings in order to do uh, predictive maintenance and keep that thing up and running, right? You can build thousands of models to predict what parts are going to break and, and replace them just in time without having to, uh, you know, go through all that complex analysis and so on. 
Craig, so if uh, we're talking about, you know, the ability for users that are data savvy, but they're not data scientists, being able to use DataRobot and be able to get more out of machine learning, because I mean, the whole thing we're talking about, one thing that really stuck out, as you said, democratizing data. So what skills do these data savvy engineers or analysts need to have in, in order to be able to become and use this tool like a data scientist would? The biggest one is knowing the business, right? I mean, if you think about sort of the standard definition of a data scientist, there's those three skill sets. You can picture that Venn diagram that everybody's seen, uh, kind of the, the, the meeting of uh, coding and algorithms and business expertise. I think the traditional data scientist has the most trouble with the business expertise side, and that is arguably the most important piece of the puzzle. Uh, it turns out that if you can take somebody who knows the business, knows the problems, right? They're losing sleep over, you know, whatever it might be, right? Revenue or, or operating expenses or risk or whatever. If you can give them the ability to spot opportunities to convert those business problems into real ML problems, like machine AI solutions, then you're, you know, you're 80% of the way there because you can, you automation and tools can get them the rest of the way. Uh, so it's not really a technical challenge anymore. I mean, obviously, knowing the data is important and, uh, you know, having having access to it and all the kind of data infrastructure and so on that, that goes along with it. But really, 90% of the battle is knowing the business and being able to frame the problems. Okay, so DataRobot takes this concept of I get a nice, a good data set, uh, you know, a, a data set that's organized in a, in a decent way that I can in, implement it into DataRobot. And then you you either upload it or you know you you give data robot access to that file, then you can do some like you said that data you know cleansing missing values that kind of stuff. Then data robot goes into running its uh, running its it kind of its its bread and butter. It's it, the meat of what data robot does, which is it goes in parses the data into logical sets like you talked about holdouts, right? So you can do some training, you can do some some uh, validation later, and then after that. Once I've got some models and I've figured out which models are best, what next? What do I do then? What does DataRobot help me do from the point of I've got a model that, that I identified as good? How do I actually put that into practice? Yeah, really good question. Uh, it turns out that's the second hardest part of this process. Uh, it's the first hardest once you automate all the, all the, the, the technical data science stuff. Uh, and it's different for every use case. So I mean, deployment options have to be very flexible because all use cases are going to have somewhat different implementations, right? So if you imagine uh, a fraud use case, right, where I, I'm a, a, a transaction like a processor, like a point of sale type transaction processor, and I want to block fraudulent transactions. Well, I need to do that in real time, right? I need to do it when the person is standing there at the checkout register. If it's a fraudulent transaction, I want to block it before the person gets, you know, pays. Uh, so that's a real-time use case. That means it has to be highly available. Uh, it has to be redundant. It has to never fail. It has to be on all the time. It has to respond in, in microseconds and so on. That's one kind of one end of the spectrum, right? And there's lots of stuff in that real-time space, things like, uh, high frequency trading or ad bidding or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, the kind of on the far other side of the spectrum is like nightly batch type processing, right? Maybe I have a set of customers and on a, a weekly basis, say, I want to score them for churn risk, 
right? I want to try to predict who's going to lead me for a competitor. Well, I don't need to do that in real time and I don't need to do it every day. Maybe, uh, maybe I need to do it weekly or monthly or even quarterly, something like that, depending on the business. So, you know, those two use cases, both are worth tons of money, but they have really, really different uh, implementation paths. And so I don't think you can focus on one particular setup. That's one of the mistakes that we actually see a lot is that organizations have sort of the happy path, the one path that they deploy these models with, and they don't really work for either, uh, either, either one of those solutions. So you have to be flexible, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's now one thing that we also know is true is, is it like I heard, I don't remember which book it was in. I'll have to go back and look, but I, I heard a quote that said, basically every algorithm is wrong, but many of them are inherently useful. Yeah. But, but they also, their usefulness, doesn't it, doesn't it degrade over time? They do. So you have to watch them. In fact, there's a lot of regulation in the financial sector uh, that actually forces organizations to do that kind of modeling for their or monitoring for their models. Um, you know, in the in the uh, credit scoring space, for example, uh, really all models within banking institutions, uh, depending on the level of risk associated with them going wrong, you have to monitor. Right? Are they still making accurate predictions? Is the is the population different? Has the world changed? Because you know these events happen in the world and. To the extent that the relationships between the features that you include in your models and whatever outcome that you're trying to predict, to the extent that those relationships change, then all of a sudden your models aren't, aren't going to be working anymore. So keeping an eye on them is really important. Isn't that one of the other challenges with uh, a lot of this machine learning and the trend towards AI is the ability to audit what's actually going on under the covers? There's actually been a ton of progress in that space. So, you know, I think all of us have probably heard the word black box before. Mm -hmm. You guys heard yeah. that? I oh, hate yeah. that phrase. I hate it. Uh, because depending on who who you're talking to, they'll use that word as like uh, an arrow that they're firing at you, a flaming arrow. Uh, so if you talk to a statistician, then they'll use the word black box to describe any machine learning technique, uh, like a random forest or something like that. If you talk to a business person, then all models are black boxes, uh, you know, whatever, right? But it turns out, in my view, that the technology to understand how these models work, uh, things like partial dependence and, and uh, neural sensitivity analyses and reason, you know, uh, like reason codes and so on, there's plenty of ways to understand the inner workings of even your most complex deep neural networks say, uh, you know, certainly there are models that are less interpretable than others. And there's, there's a trade-off when it comes to model selection in terms of picking something that's simple and explainable versus accurate, right? I mean, those things go, you know, it's a, it's a spectrum, but it's like, you can have uh, we always say you can have good, fast and cheap, but you have to pick two. Yeah, exactly. So simple or accurate. I don't know if it, certainly it was it was that way more in the past, but the tools have really come a long way as far as interpreting how these models actually work, uh, even when they're really quite complex. Interesting. So data robot takes this concept of, OK, I can build a model and now I can visualize what that model is. And then I have the option of if I want to do those real time, you know, I want to deploy that fraud kit kind of use case or I want to do that batch. 
is it like like when, when you say it deploys these models is it opening up like um i mean some sort of an api that i can integrate into uh use some sort of commercial or proprietary application like what how do i actually put it into you know put it into action uh yeah there's four main ways to do it inside of data robot uh, one is a GUI-based approach. So if I'm uh, an Excel user and I have some kind of uh, process that I that I manually do, I can just drag and drop a, a file into the GUI. Uh, super manual, not uh, super repeatable, uh, but it exists, right? So if you don't want to write any code, if you want kind of the, the easy way, then the GUI is there. Uh, the second, like you say, is the API approach. So... My personal view is that the API, using an API for, for deploying predictive models is a very excellent way to do it, uh, mainly because it keeps you from having to implement scoring code. It, it eliminates the possibility of implementation errors uh, and so on, right? There's lots of good, good, good options when it comes to, uh, or good reasons to use an API. Uh, low latency, high throughput, horizontally scalable, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's the third uh, or second. The third is Spark. So, you know, if you're scoring a, a giant mountain of data, um, then, you know, distributed scoring using something like Hadoop, using Spark uh, is super fast and a super good way to do it. Uh, and and then the last way to to get predictions out of data robot is just to dump code. We'll, we'll give you raw Java code. So if you want to really, okay. yeah, literally see exactly every step that data robot is taking, you could just dump the code directly out and implement that directly. That's a more technical approach, right? I mean, that's going to require some engineering work to get it up and running because uh, it's little, it's it's code, right? It needs to be you know compiled and maintained and and so on. So if you want the code, you can have it, uh, and that's good for you know like an offline application or if I need you know ultra ultra fast embedded predictions for like a high frequency trading use case or something like that then, uh, you know, that's, that, that's the fourth option. Interesting. So one of the things you brought up was, uh, deployment models. So one of the things like I was going on your website, I noticed that you very much have a cloud service where you can deploy in AWS. And I'm guessing that's probably, that's probably like the entry point for a lot of your, you know, your customers, they want to try it out. They don't want to have to invest in deploying, you know, any sort of platform themselves. They just want to kind of play with it and tinker it, which is cool. But do you also offer like are there are there large organizations that say look I don't want to I don't want to send all of this data that I want to run these models uh, against I want to do this in you know in my you know in my data center on my gear like is there a way for organizations to do it both ways or is it all or none or is it only in the cloud what are the how do organizations actually deploy data robot in context of their enterprise strategy yeah uh, turns out that's a, a really good question, and organizations have uh, tackled it differently. Uh, the more, uh, the smaller an organization is, and the newer it is, the the more friendly they are towards the cloud, yeah. uh, which I suppose is not surprising. No, uh, and the more sensitive data an organization uses, uh, health data, personal credit information, that kind of thing, uh, those those guys tend to want to have an on-prem solution. So about two, three years ago, we kind of made the commitment to, to be uh, available however you want us. So we've got a cloud solution. Uh, we've you know probably you know, 60% of our customers use the cloud. Uh, all the big customers and all the banks and, and health, health 
organizations use on-prem solutions. So uh, DataRobot can install on you know, Hadoop clusters, Linux servers. Is, there's lots and lots of ways to, to get DataRobot to work in your environment. Uh, we don't need an internet connection to run. Uh, DataRobot never tries to, to phone home when it's on-prem and so on. So we can be fully behind a firewall and, and not have a problem. It's kind of interesting you bring up that. That's that's actually one of the really intriguing things I learned about DataRobot that I thought was, in terms of like usefulness and, and enterprise adoption, one of the things that we saw over the last, you know, call it four or five years was a lot of organizations, much like your AIG example previously, where they invested heavily in data science because they thought, oh, we, you know, everybody's doing it, we got to do it. A lot of people invested in these big Hadoop clusters because they were like, oh, there's this data deluge. We got to have a place to store it. This technology, whether it's, you know, Cloudera or Hortonworks or whatever, this Hadoop stuff is is where everybody seems to be storing it because then we can analyze it. And there was kind of this like this peak investment and people had built these large clusters and then they struggled sometimes with getting value out of one, all the data and two, the investments in technology that they made to to basically build these big siloed data analytics environments. To me, it seems like data robot going in and then coexisting in existing Hadoop clusters, like that has to be one, I'm assuming, that has to be one of y'all's like target, go to market and probably best places for people who are like your customers are looking around going, well, I got this giant Hadoop cluster and nobody likes it anymore. Maybe I could get data robot yeah. in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're so right, man. That's exactly what we saw, uh, you know, two, three years ago as we were, uh, you know, starting starting out in the on-prem space is that organizations had spent millions of dollars on commodity hardware uh, to run, you know, Cloudera, Hortonworks, uh, you know, whatever distribution of Hadoop, uh, you know, they, they wanted. Uh, and the, the cores are just sitting there. Right, they're just not not being used. No compute, right? Maybe they're the data nodes are getting used, but the the compute is just kind of dormant. Um, so yeah, we're 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 as tightly integrated with Hadoop as you as you can be. Um, you know, we integrate with all the you know, like on Cloudera, we'll integrate with Sentry and Kerberos and so on. Uh, you know, we install with uh, we we look look just like a native application on Cloudera, Cloudera Package Manager, oh, cool. uh, Yarn integration, all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, yeah, we're we're as tight as you can get with uh, with the dupe as far as that integration goes. Well, and I think that's one of those, like you said, you you guys made that decision a few years ago, but I I would argue that pretty much anybody that wants to be you know kind of in this you know, data analytics space, you got, I mean, you got to be a first class citizen with the Hadoop vendors because like it or not, they, they have made very big investments and customers have invested heavily in them. Um, so I think that's smart. One, one other thing though is, do you guys play with, I mean, I, I think about the predictive models and the way that you, you orient data that goes into data robot. Are there equally, uh, as big of, um, or shouldn't say maybe not as big as, but as tight connection points into more traditional, enterprise data warehouses, like scale out databases, MPPs, that kind of stuff? Uh, sure. I mean, there's lots of ways to bring data in, right? So we can make uh, ODBC connections. We can, you know, bring in uh, Parquet Avro files from HDFS. We can connect to, you know, S3 or, or, you know, share drives or whatever. So there's lots of ways to get to get data in. Yeah. It turns out everybody's infrastructure is different, right? Even, you know, particularly if you go overseas, right? So Asia has... Uh, at least in my experience, seems to have a much lower adoption of Hadoop. Uh, at least they haven't, maybe they haven't gotten there yet. Maybe they're going down a different path. I don't know. So, you know, the, the hardware 
and technology stacks that that enterprises are using tend to be hugely varied. Uh, and so, you know, being able to fit in with all those different technology stacks is really important. Yeah, I was actually over in Japan uh, in, end of last year, and I ran into a lot of your customers uh, there. It was incredible. I, I, so I didn't realize you guys had such a presence in Japan. It was quite stunning. Yeah, Japan, it turns out, loves automation. Uh, they are crazy about robots, too. So uh, oh. you know. <laughs> your, your stickers must go like hotcakes over there. Oh, yeah, it's a match made in heaven. We've, we've actually got, I think, maybe 15 or 16 people in our, our Tokyo office. Uh, and a, a massive, uh, massive customer base there. So Japan is, is, I would say, the leading edge of of automation and interest in uh, deploying AI to optimize their the way everything runs. Yeah. So talking about deploying AI, I know you're you're pretty heavily focused in the financial services industry, and I know you, you may or may not be able to talk about specific customers, but like let's let's unpack a few of these use cases and how you've seen organizations kind of go from a problem statement to a, hey, I'm using data robot to effectively achieve X. Uh, yeah, so it turns out that pretty much any part of an organization, uh, particularly banking, is is ripe for automation, right? So um, if, you, if you look at, say, a sales team, Right. If you if you look at the process of generating uh, new business from prospect lists, uh, ranking those prospects in terms of uh, maybe their propensity to buy, maybe their credit worthiness, you know, whatever, uh, turns out to generate much better results than whatever subjective process is being used by sales teams today. Uh, the same is true for cross-selling, right? To uh, deepening relationships with existing customers. Uh, turns out, targeted marketing to your existing customer base to increase the the level of adoption of your products is is hugely beneficial to an organization. Uh, risk, uh, you know, forecasting uh, credit losses, uh, super easy with machine learning, uh, and a, a huge opportunity in in banking. Uh, fraud, uh, financial crime, um, you know, uh, operations type use cases. There's there's just so many different avenues that you can go down. Uh, one interesting one that I particularly like is has to do with what do you do when an account goes bad, right? What do you do when a loan, uh, you know, stops paying? Uh, what's the optimal resolution strategy for for maximizing recoveries on a, a loan that's gone bad? Turns out there's lots of really interesting things that you can do in that space. So 2017, or maybe the second half of 2017, started seeing fintech huge, you know, on Twitter, it was trending all the time. And then, you know, toward the end of 2017, um, even, you know, our former guest, uh, Bill Schmarzo was going to change his name to uh, the the dean of uh, Bitcoin or the dean of blockchain. <laughs> Is AI and machine learning in these use cases, is, that's what, is that what's driving so much of popularity and so much of the focus on fintech or is it, is it something totally different? It's a big piece of it, right? So, you know, you've got fintech companies in the, in the lending space. Uh, lending is all about forecasting risk, right? So if I can predict how likely you are to pay back a loan, then I can price it profitably and I can steal a piece of the market. So it really is an arms race in that space. Uh, and whoever's got the best model wins. Um, you know, if you look at uh, at the payment space, if you look at just so many different sectors in in fintech, 
identifying, uh, you know, building those models in a, a, a fast way, a speed, a fast speed to market and being nimble in the way you do it is the reason why fintechs are getting so much, uh, so much traction. The reason they haven't fully taken over, I think there are two reasons. One is they don't have nearly as much data as the big guys do. Uh, and they don't have nearly as much business expertise, right? So it, it's still the case, in my view, that the big players uh, still have the expertise in terms of how the business works and and how to run, uh, say, a bank, for example. Uh, kind of a David versus Goliath. Yeah, I mean, the tech guys are are coming in and they're they're taking up a lot of that slack. And I think some of the big players are are justifiably afraid of the the market share that they're losing in that space but there's still time for for the big orgs to to you know invest in in ai and and build models in a, a more nimble type fashion to to stay ahead what area of uh, financials do you think machine learning will change the most of or, or be the most transformative in oh interesting um i think that i think the financial crimes and fraud space is really interesting um, most of the fraud systems that we come across these days are sort of rule-based, right? So, you know, if this transaction meets rules A, B, and C, then we'll block it, otherwise not. Uh, those, those systems tend not to be very good. You can improve them very, very easily with machine learning. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to reduce losses and so on. That, that's going to be really big. Um, Take it a lot from a classification filter to much more of a, a live breathing yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a ton of room there. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting is in the lending space, uh, you know, some of the fintechs like uh, Lending Club and, and some of these others are, are kind of going after the non-traditional lending market. Uh, you know, folks with no credit score or, or bad credit or, or whatever it is. Uh, that's kind of been a place where the traditional players haven't haven't really wanted to play so much, or conversely, have been kind of predatory in the way they they work with those folks. They could have like payday lenders and and so on. Uh, I think you know I think there's a lot going on in the the thin file credit space and and some some of those areas that are that are really interesting. Wow! So you actually spent some time prior to Data Robot. You were. You were right in the crux of this. It uh, looks like travelers and regions developing models. <clears throat> how, so, so how did you end up going from a, being a practitioner in the, you know, right in the heart of this stuff to to joining a tech company doing this? Yeah. So the founders of Data Robot, uh, we all worked together at uh, at Travelers. Uh, so that's where I met uh, Jeremy H and our. Uh, our founder and Tom Degadoy, his his co-founder. So uh, we all kind of met there. Uh, they went off to uh, start the company back in 2012. Uh, I joined uh, two and a half, three years later, something like that, um, after they had kind of built the product. Uh, one of the unique things about Data Robot is that uh, they took or we took the first, say, 25 million or so in venture capital. And just dumped a hundred percent of it into building a, a real, legitimate product that actually does what we claim it does. Uh, we didn't do an iota of marketing until you know year three, maybe year four. <laughs> uh, so I joined right when we when we started to go to market, 
because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and, and help empower and accelerate the way organizations adopt this kind of technology. Interesting. So uh, I'm curious, uh, you don't have a mustache anymore. I, we thought for sure that a large part of your statistical prowess had to originate from that robust mustache. That's too bad. <laughs> yeah, I find that I can barely think straight now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, we hate that for you. Well, we'll welcome you back to the land of the uh, furry face anytime you're, anytime you're interested. <laughs> Well, Greg, this has been super fun. I, I appreciate the conversation. I think what I take away from this is is data robot is absolutely democratizing data science, developing and giving folks some great tools to actually do data science without being a data scientist so that you actually get some ROI from machine learning in the business. And you guys are writing a bunch of stuff that maybe isn't the, the easiest parts of the data science process and making it easier to take those models, push them back into the business, back into action. I think that's super cool tech people ought to pay attention to. I got to know though, like in your, when you think about what's next in the the machine learning space and, and you kind of look at this in um, just this technology ecosystem over the next call it 12 to 18 months, what are some of the big macro trends that you think that we ought to be paying attention to as it relates to, to machine learning and AI? I think one of the really interesting places is unstructured data. Um, data Robot does a fair amount with with uh, text, just raw text. And it, it always surprises me how much value there is in just straight text, right? It's not a structured data field. It's, uh, it's just what somebody typed in or the words that somebody said or, or whatever it might be. Um, that unstructured data tends to be really orthogonal to other data sources that exist. And so harnessing that stuff, both text and audio and video and photos and all that kind of stuff, I think is going to be really important. Um, you know, we've started to do some work in that space using like a decapitated neural networks to featureize images and, and so on. So I think there's some exciting things to come in that space. The other thing to look for uh, from Data Robot in particular over the next year is uh, the, the things we're doing in the time series space. Uh, we have a time series beta that is out now that is doing stuff with time series data that I've never seen before. Uh, the, the, the automated feature creation, the, the forecasting capabilities of Data Robot are, are pretty unique in the market. And uh, I, I don't think there exists another product out there that that can kind of, that can do what Data Robot uh, can in the time series space. So that's another uh, really interesting area. So, like uh, time series indexing or time series and then model development. Yeah, yeah, model development. So forecasting type models. Uh, you know, in the maybe in the market space or. Uh, you know, there's lots of different applications of of time series. I mean, all all the sensor data that we that we get in factories today is time series data. Uh, yeah, so I think about so time series. I start to think about the uh, a lot of the security and log players have to be folks that would be interesting for you to use as sources. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking about things like when you say time series, I think like Splunk, time series DB, anything that does a time series index seems like it might be a good source that then you could use. Data Robots time series product to build models against. Hmm. Yeah, it turns out that that kind of munging time series data is hard, right? Particularly most time series is, aren't uh, real regular, so irregular time series. And then looking at, you know, what are all? I mean, just imagine all the aggregations that you can make, right? You've got like moving averages and 
what did you know what was the what happened over the last say two weeks on this in this data and how does that help me forecast forward for this the series that I'm interested in and and so on so the, the time series feature engineering stuff is really interesting very cool so so that was a little preview on data robot any other cool announcements that that you guys are going to be or I shouldn't say cool announcements but cool things we should pay attention to specifically the data robots doing outside of just time series uh, there's there's cool stuff coming all the time so you know I would I would say. Uh, have a look at our uh, our website and, and see uh, you know what what's what's all uh, you know in the works there. Uh, lots of stuff that's going on that uh, I can't talk about at the moment. So you know, lots of lots of exciting opportunities out there. The data science world is a big space, uh, and so you know, reaching out into all the little nooks and crannies of of uh, the kinds of problems that that folks are facing today is is a good time. So do you uh, do you personally do you go into any of the any of the data conferences, like are there any conferences of interest that that you spend time at? Uh, Strata is always big. Uh, we do Strata every year. That's a it's a great conference. There's another one called the Open Data Science Conference, uh, ODSC. It's it's a kind of an open source uh, conference. It's that's exciting. Uh, that's that's one that I always look forward to. Uh, that one happens several times a year. So those those two are good ones that I that I tend to enjoy. Awesome. Well. Uh... We're actually uh, a community sponsor of O'Reilly's Strata Conferences globally. And uh, for those folks listening, remember, uh, you need to drop a review in iTunes or subscribe to the podcast, and they will have a chance to win a free pass to Strata San Jose, which is in March this year. So we're huge fans of Strata ourselves. Yeah. And there's actually, I don't know if you saw, but O'Reilly actually launched their, uh, this year, they're going to have an AI set of AI conferences, uh, one in New York, one in Beijing and one in London. So I'll be uh, excited to check those out this year as well. Yeah. The, uh, the last time I was at Strata, I think I went by the O'Reilly booth and they were doing headshots. Uh, so there was a massive line kind of out the door doing headshots at the O'Reilly booth. So they always do creative stuff there. <laughs> I wonder if those are used for a decapitated neural network. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. Well, Greg, I appreciate the time. It's been super fun. Thomas, Kyle, thanks for being on. What we're going to do now, though, is we're going to shift gears real quick and we're going to go to our rapid fire section. And what I want you to do is, is Greg, sit back, relax. And give me the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you this quest these questions, okay? Oh boy. All right. What year will Skynet go online? Ooh, 2025. All right. What's the book best book you've read in the last year? Oh boy. I don't <laughs> so many to pick from. Uh, I actually read Watership Watership Down with my kids this year. It's it's oh. uh, super sad, but it's a good book. All right. What particular genre of music are you rocking right now? Oh, Willie Nelson, all the way. Oh, classic. Yeah. Huge fan. All right. What is your favorite piece of utterly useless technology? Ooh. Um, favorite. Wow, that's a good one. Uh, sitting on my desk here is a uh, motor from a player piano that is operated hundred percent by suction. So it's a suction powered motor. Uh, <laughs> I and think it really it, sucks. I, I rebuilt it about a year ago in my shop just for, just for giggles. And, uh, I can't think of anything to do with it, but it's so cool that I can't, uh, I can't imagine getting rid of it. 
See, I can just see you twisting your mustache while working on a suction motor in your shop. <laughs> you got to see it, man. It's super cool. <laughs> awesome. All right. So what is your biggest money pit right now? Oh, I'm actually starting to consider making YouTube videos. Uh, so I've uh, I've recently bought some lighting and and uh, some audio video equipment stuff to start start doing that. So that, that's certainly going to be a, a money pit. I don't expect to ever get any any benefit from doing that. Is that like a uh, vlogging format or educational videos? Uh, I find that there is a vacuum of quality product review videos out there. Um, I have a variety of interests, everything from, uh, you know, firearms to uh, woodworking to you, you name it. So uh, true Renaissance man. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, product reviews. So let's see. uh, Are you a cook? No, okay. I don't cook, but right. I do eat. We won't we won't take you down the sous vide path. That's another one I'll teach you about later. All right, are you going anywhere interesting soon? Uh, I have to be in London um, in a few weeks for uh, for work, uh, but I don't. You know, I spend up. I spend most of my time traveling these days anyway. So uh, the most interesting place that I go is home. Oh, couldn't <laughs> agree more. All right, last question: What? show are you binging on right now Ooh, i just caught up to the end of game of thrones so the current debate in my house is what next uh we're about a season behind in westworld Unreal. uh which is a it's an awesome show and uh my oldest son is catching up on the big bang theory now so so that plays at my house as well good choice well, Greg, thank you so much for your time. Let me ask real quick, where can we find you on social if uh, our listeners want to follow you, check you out, check out what you're up to? Yeah, so my Twitter is uh, tweeting as Greg, uh, which is always exciting. Uh, that's really the only social media I do. I've got a Facebook account, but uh, Facebook is for grandparents at this point. So, yeah. Uh, ain't it though? <laughs> All right. Well, Greg, it has been super awesome. I highly encourage our listeners, check out Data Robot. Really cool piece of technology, empowering uh, analysts and those folks just interested in data science to really have data science tools at their fingertips. We appreciate you listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Big Data Beard podcast. As a thank you for listening to our show, we'd like to offer you a chance to win a free pass to Strata Conference in San Jose, March 6th through the 8th of 2018. To enter, all you need to do is either subscribe to our mailing list at bigdatabeard.com forward slash follow or submit a review in iTunes rating our podcast. Or you can do both and be entered for two chances to win. We will hold a random drawing in early January and make the announcement of the winner by January 31st. And don't forget, you can get a 20% discount to attend any of O'Reilly's Strata Data or AI conferences globally. Simply use the link in our show notes or promo code PCBEARD at checkout. And tune in to future episodes for chances to win free passes to these awesome conferences. Thanks for listening, and let that beard grow.